Hi, I'm Carrie Compton, and today we'll be revisiting a conversation from the beginning of 2019 that I had with Woodrow Wilson School visiting professor Ashok Modi, a former deputy director at the International Monetary Fund's Research and European Departments. In our last interview, Professor Modi described his findings from his book, Euro Tragedy, a drama in nine acts, in which he questions the political and financial wisdom behind the creation of a single European currency and monetary policy. An updated and extended paperback edition of the book has just been released. Today, in light of a looming economic crisis caused by the COVID-19 outbreak, Professor Modi joins us again to briefly discuss what's at stake for Europe and the United States economies. Thank you so much for joining me again. You're very welcome. Describe for us what the outbreak means for global trade, considering that it debilitated China and Europe as it has. Unlike the uh, influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1920, the world economy is extremely globalized. And even more importantly, the most important nodes of global trade have been uh, impaired by by this crisis. So China is the most important node. China has been the center of global trade for the last two decades. The Chinese economy comes to uh, grinding halt in the first couple of months of this year. Chinese exports and imports uh, declined precipitously. And that means that China imports less from other economies, which means those other economies sell less to uh, China, but then they import less from others. And so there's a knock-on effect from China, which then spills around the world. What also happened was that the the disease then went to Europe and European economies are the other major big nodes in in global trade. So what this means is that as long as major nodes in the world trade network are impaired, even if one or other country begins to recover, the fact that the others are not recovering uh, will 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 imply that the world trade will continue to be weighed down. For example, we are now hearing that the Chinese economy is getting back on its feet and the Chinese authorities are trying to push some of the exports that were already waiting in their ports. But for all of that to work, there must be somebody at the other end to receive those products. The Chinese factories, when they begin humming again, will need to sell their stuff abroad uh, because again, China is so dependent on world trade. As long as Europe remains under the grip of the virus, the European ability to receive these goods is going to be limited. Their ability to export to others will be limited. And that's going to cause world trade to remain very subpar for the next, in my mind, at least six to nine months. Now, I focused on on China and, and Europe because they are so large, but this also implies that a number of so-called emerging markets 
like Mexico, Turkey, Argentina, Indonesia, to some extent India, they will all have drags on their economic growth because of their linkages to world trade. And while the United States tends to be somewhat insulated from world trade because it's got such a large domestic economy, eventually, or probably already, the U.S. is also going to get affected by this. We we have two crises going on. We have a domestic crisis, which is because people are not able to go to work, people are not able to gather. That's, That's a domestic crisis. But because it also gets linked to international trade, that domestic crisis gets amplified into the global economy. Is there any... Upside probably isn't the right word, but is there any upside to the fact that the crisis is so global? It, it, might it mean greater international cooperation for recovery? Now, this is a moment when global cooperation should, in fact, be very high on the agendas of policymakers. But in practice, what we are seeing right now is that it's everyone for themselves because there are good reasons and bad reasons for this. The good reason is that the nature of the domestic incidents of the disease and the problems that they need to deal with at home in terms of hospitalizations and protective gear and all that is a national problem. There isn't very much that people can do in terms of helping there, although there is, a, even on that, there is this whole question of exporting protective gear. So there have been shortages. And in, in Europe, there have been some reports that countries are not exporting protective gear to each other because they want to keep it for themselves. China seems to have sort of stepped into that breach. And the Chinese are trying to sell some of uh, their extra production to to particularly the Europeans, both because it makes economic sense, but it also wins them diplomatic brownie points. On that front, it still, in my view, has to be primarily a domestic response. Then the question is, on the economic policy side, can there be international coordination? And for the moment, the fact that there is not more international cooperation at one level is all right, because as long as each country pursues an extremely aggressive monetary policy and fiscal policy response to counter the economic effects, then even though we do not have a formal coordination, there is an implied coordination, because everyone is, is so to say, putting their shoulder to the wheel. Mm. Where the problem arises is in Europe, because there the imbalance between the damage done by the crisis is great. So Italy, particularly, but also increasingly Spain, have been hurt a lot more than Germany and the Netherlands, or even France up until now. Before I explain to you what's happening in Europe, just I want to step back and see what's happening in the United States, because this gives a perspective 
on what the Europeans in principle need to do. So stimulus package that was agreed on uh, in the United States, federal government does a number of things to help the states. So there is a very depressing lack of coordination going on on the medical front over here. Uh, all the fights about the ventilators and so on are both disgusting and depressing. Mm -hmm. But on the economic policy side, the federal government stimulus will top up the state's unemployment insurance. There is a large provision in, in the stimulus package to give states uh, money to help them with the sort of physical effort of building uh, hospitals and other uh, supply channels or whatever they need to deal with this crisis. Mm -hmm. In Europe, none of that is happening. Wow. Because the Germans are the Germans and the French are the French and the Italians are the Italians. There is no federal government in, in Europe. Europe is like the United States was between 1776 and 1787, a confederation of states. The federal government in the United States at that time was extremely weak and each, each state pretty much did what they wanted to do. And there was no ability or incentive for, for the federal government to help. There is a, a famous story that New York State used to get a large uh, revenues through import uh, tariffs, which were levied on goods coming in through New York. And the federal government desperately needed to pay wartime debts and pay pensions of soldiers. And New York State said, now, why exactly would we help you pay that? Yeah. Uh, so that was sort of, in a sense, the spur that caused people like James Madison to say this, this confederation setup is going to just tear us apart. Yeah. And we need to create a federal state. In Europe, that never happened. Right. And so each state has its own fiscal authority with no legal obligations to other states. Mm -hmm. So they need to coordinate. There is a huge problem because the question, you know, which I, I talked about in my book, uh, Euro Tragedy, has always been now, why exactly will we pay your bills? Right. There is one, one line of co uh, cooperation coordination going on, which is through the European Central Bank. The European Central Bank is the central bank of a confederation of states, right. but it can print money. Hmm. And it is printing money, or it has, it has promised to print money, uh, something of the order of 750 billion euros just for this pandemic effort. Okay. In addition to about 250 or odd that was already in the pipeline. So this 750 is in principle supposed to buy the bonds of European governments. The goal is twofold. One is that to the extent the ECB buys the bonds of European governments, that will help keep the interest rates on those bonds low because the, the demand for those bonds goes up mm -hmm. and so the interest rate will remain low. But there is also a more sort of direct problem, which is that take Italy, for example. 
the Italians already owe something like 2.3 trillion uh, euros of, of debt, wow. which is about 135% of their GDP. If their GDP is falling, which by, uh, we, we know that their GDP is falling, we don't quite yet know by how much, but it could well fall by, you know, anywhere in the range of eight to 10% over the coming months. Wow which means that their ability to repay their debt obligations will come under a huge amount of strain because as their GDP falls, their tax revenues will fall, their uh, requirements to spend on unemployment insurance will increase, and therefore they will be extremely constrained fiscally and their ability to repay their debt, therefore will, uh, will come under great deal of market anxiety. And so then the ECB can, in principle, step in. Okay, in effect, they will basically say, if you cannot get money from other creditors, or if you need to pay, repay your other creditors, we will do that for you. Hmm. So the ECB can keep Italy and Spain afloat for a while. Here in the United States also, the Federal Reserve is similarly buying the bonds of US Treasury. Right. But here, and this is again why a federal state is different from a confederation of states. Here, if for some reason, this is not going to happen, let me just be clear, but if for some reason the ECB having bought the bonds, uh, having bought the US Treasuries, suffers a loss on those Treasuries, okay, in other words, the, uh, having bought them, the price of those treasuries goes down, and so the uh, Federal Reserve loses money on them. Then the U.S. Treasury will have an obligation to make up that loss hmm. over, through their budget. Over the years, over the coming years, the U.S. Treasury will then have to raise taxes and repay the, uh, quote-unquote, repay the Fed so that the Fed's capital is not uh, reduced. Come back now to, to Europe. In Europe, suppose the European Central Bank buys several hundred billion uh, euros of Italian debt. Now, first of all, remember several hundred is not enough because they have 2.3 trillion debt. So even if they buy several hundred, there will come a point at which ECB will become the largest creditor, largest lender to the Italian government. Mm. At which point it'll look almost like the ECB owns Italy. Wow. And, and, and at that point, then, if the question arises, the ECB in effect owns Italy and the Italians now cannot repay the ECB, then the ECB will suffer a loss, which, which will leave a hole in the ECB's capital, which the Germans and the, and the Dutch and the Austrians and the French will all have to fill. Oh my goodness. So, so they, are, they, they are not speaking this language as yet, but that is what is in their, in their heads right now. Hmm. At what point do we pay the bills that the Italians need to pay? So just to give you one last bit of sort of quantitative information, as I said, the US government as part of the stimulus package is, go, is giving, I think something in the range of $150 billion will go to the states. And remember, these are not loans, these are just grants. 
if if the same thing were to happen, the Italians should be receiving two or two or three hundred billion euros of cash right now from the rest of Europe. Wow. But that kind of money would be politically explosive in, in Europe. Sure. No one even dares to talk about it. I, I'm, I'm giving it to you as a number just to put it in perspective that that is probably the scale of money that the Italians need, not as a loan, but just as a grant. Wow. Do you think that that will happen? No, I, I don't see how that can happen. I just, I mean, you know, anything can happen, but... Uh, the the likelihood that something like that will happen is is just a, a negligible in my view. At some level, the crisis that the globe is facing is similar, the financial crisis, which is that world trade is the slowing world trade is affecting everybody. We came into this crisis with a, a large mountain of debt that we we owed. Mm. Uh, that mountain of debt had accumulated over the last 10 years because interest rates were very low. Mm -hmm. And so households and companies and banks and governments busily borrowed uh, because the interest rates were so low. This is sort of a classic pattern that when interest rates are low, debt levels go up mm -hmm. and they had gone up to historical heights. Mm -hmm. So we came into this crisis with a historically high debt burden that affected virtually every country and virtually every kind of borrower. Mm. Suddenly now, just think of it, you've borrowed a gob of money and suddenly you know that over the next year, your income is going to be 10 or 15% less than you, what you thought it's going to be. Right. So you are, you are much more indebted than you have ever been and your income is falling much more than it ever has. And that is the situation we are in right now. So we are, we are moving into a, a situation, A, where even with the enormous amount of policy support that the Federal Reserve, the US Treasury in the UK, the Bank of England, and the UK Treasury, and the Europeans to not quite the same extent, but by their standards to a, a considerable extent are doing. Nevertheless, there will be at some point people who will begin to default on their debts mm. in the next you know, six to nine months. And when those defaults occur, then the financial system of the world will begin to, uh, to show strain and anxiety in the markets. If I default on a loan that I have taken from you, you are not able to repay your creditors. And so it goes up the daisy chain yeah. uh, up until it reaches some large uh, lender like a pension fund or insurance company where sort of the big, big pockets of money are. But then if people start defaulting on the loans that they have made, then their ability to pay out pensions and and insurance claims is compromised. I'm not saying that we will reach there. What I am saying is that that scenario exists as a small but real possibility. Yeah. I believe most people think that there will be more stimulus coming beyond what was approved. Um, what does that mean for the United States debt? So I think, I think more stimulus will be needed. 
it means that there will be more debt, but that debt in principle for the United States, and this is not going to be true for every country, but in, in the case of the United States, they still have uh, very low interest rates, the nominal interest rates, and then eventually if the scenario of high inflation or higher inflation materializes, then with the higher inflation, the tax revenues will also increase mm. uh, to repay that debt. Mm. Uh, so you repay your debt, two factors make it easier to repay your debt. Either the interest rate is low, which it is still, or the uh, inflation is high, which is, which is not the case now, but could become high. And so that, that combination of relatively low interest rates, relatively high inflation, will eventually help repay that debt. Mm. This may not be true in, in Italy and in um, even in Spain potentially, mm -hmm. uh, because before all of that happens, they might not be able to uh, repay their debts. I have been concerned about Italy's ability to repay its debts, even in better circumstances. In these circumstances, I, I certainly am very concerned one of the world's preeminent sovereign attorneys, a guy named Lee Bukait, he, he has written a piece uh, saying that there are going to be lots of sovereign defaults in the coming uh, months. Wow. And it, it's a judgment which intuitively makes sense. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to hear other episodes, please go to paw.princeton.edu or subscribe on Apple iTunes. Till next time.